Father, we have come to worship you, your Son, and the act of your Spirit upon our hearts. We rejoice for what you've given us. And we think about this season, all that you've provided in Christ, and Lord, we worship him. We thank you for him. We thank you for the, your magnificent plan. May we rejoice forevermore. I pray this is true for those of us who are believers, but also true for those who are coming into faith right now. We pray that you would grant them that faith. You would cause in their hearts a desire to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Teach them the gospel even this day. Teach them truth. Call them to have faith in Christ alone. Bless us now as we turn to Him, and bless us now as we look to the life of Christ, especially toward the end, before He was arrested, and as He was arrested, and as He died. And Lord, may we take these things to heart, even thinking this season about this baby who had come to live a perfect life, to die, and to rise again. Bless us as we honor You by turning our attention to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are blessed today, as we are every week, to celebrate our Savior. You know, some have asked the question from time to time, why do Christians celebrate Christmas? After all, there's no feasts, no new moons in the New Testament, nothing in terms of uh, command about feasting prescribed in the New Testament for believers. So why should Christians even celebrate Christmas? Well, among other reasons, one reason is that by focusing on and singing about reading in the Bible the stories of Christ's birth... It reminds us of God's sovereign rule over the earth to keep His covenant, to redeem His people. God purposes everything. He rules all. He directs everything according to His magnificent purposes to the praise of His glorious grace. There in the ancient Mediterranean world, you had a king, an emperor, Caesar Augustus, who blasphemously claimed to be deity. He was considered as the all-powerful. He commanded armies, had victory all, apart, all across that part of the world. He was considered even, as you look back at some archaeological inscriptions, as the Son of God, ruler of the earth. And you read that in his pride, in his domain, he commanded a tax to be taken. This was to take place all across the empire, but we learn in that Christmas narrative, Caesar Augustus is anything but divine. The divine one was being born and laid in a manger. Caesar was anything but powerful. His plan to tax was all under God's perfect supervision. It took years for that command to trickle down and finally make its way to Judea, we learned it was all so that God could put Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. Caesar was certainly not the Son of God. That was Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the Savior, born in Bethlehem, city of David. So we celebrate Christmas for one reason among others because it reminds us that God, both through miracle and through providence, rules, even the hearts and intentions of men, even through evil men, even through evil purposes, He brings about the purposes of His plan of redemption. Well, that truth, God's sovereign rule over all, is magnified when we get to the cross. 
In our text today, we have a literal host of evil people. They have clubs and swords, and they're coming after Jesus. There is Judas, possessed of Satan, the betrayer. You have the wicked, false, spiritual leaders of Israel, the priests, Levites, elders, rabbis, scribes, and Pharisees, parts of the Sanhedrin, the temple guard. And they've all come out in the middle of the night to grab Jesus to take him to an illicit trial. Jesus did not fight it. He did not lash out at them. He did not show even one scintilla of frustration or irritation. Instead, not once, but twice in our text today, verses 54 and 56, he said, this is all according to the plan. This is all a fulfillment of scriptural promises. That's why you could say scripture is fulfilled with betrayal. These evil hearts, these intentions and actions, yes, they were choices and decisions that these people made, but they're all under the sovereign plan of God. It was all a part of God's magnificent plan to redeem His people. So Jesus did not resist. He did not run away. He demonstrated His power and authority with calm acquiescence to the plan of God to put Him on the cross, all as according to Scripture. So let's read about this today, betrayal, this betrayal as a part of fulfilling God's magnificent plan. Matthew 26, I'm going to begin in verse 47. This is the next section as we walk through the book of Matthew. Matthew 26, 47, I'll read down to verse 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12, 000, 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we don't have a lot of time today. We have the Lord's table. We have a couple folks joining at the end. So let's just jump right in. You can divide this passage into two parts, two sections. The first section is all about those evil crowds coming, assembling and arresting Jesus, led by Judas. I've entitled that section, Betrayal. 
The second section is mainly Jesus speaking, and as I said earlier, twice in those verses, Jesus mentions the idea of fulfillment. So let's look at each one of these sections. First of all, betrayal. As you come to this passage, you may be surprised to find out these crowds. You have these crowd, or a crowd of people. Verse 47, while he's still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd, swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Matthew says, while he was speaking. Now remember what was happening. Remember what we've talked about already. Jesus and his men had celebrated Passover, which ended with the Lord's table. Jesus then instructed his men there in that upper room for some time, probably for several hours. We see him sort of end his instruction with what is often called the high priestly prayer. That's John 17, but that instruction is John 13 to 17. Jesus then took his men to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they approached the garden, he left Ate and took Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden, then left those men, told them to watch and pray, and then he went further into the olive trees by himself. And there, deep in that garden alone, he cried out to God, that amazing and amazingly intense prayer that we studied last time. He came back during his prayer time three times, each time mildly rebuking the disciples for not praying and watching but sleeping. And that third and final rebuke we saw there, studied there last time, verse 45, he came to the disciples, said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then immediately, while he was still speaking. So in the middle of that sentence, up comes this crowd. The whole crowd led by Judas carrying weapons, it says, clubs and swords, showed up for the arrest of Jesus. That word there, crowd or oklos in the Greek, some translations even say multitude, and indeed what it is, it's a large group of people. See, by the time that we read about this, John tells us that not only had Judas gathered and spoken with the chief priests, which who, who would have brought their retinue, their servants, as we see one of them here, their servants and others. They had also brought the temple guard, and they had also notified Pilate. In fact, they had really scared Pilate by insinuating that Jesus was on the level of Barabbas, who was a known insurrectionist and murderer. And so Pilate, always wanting to please the Roman Empire and not look bad, he didn't want any kind of insurrection. He acquiesced to their lies and their illicit accusation against Jesus, and he sent with them a number of soldiers. The Apostle John said that Judas brought a band of soldiers. The word band there is spera, which would have been a tenth of a legion. A legion is anywhere from four and 6,000 men, so folks were talking about at least 400 soldiers, maybe as many as 600 soldiers. This is a true crowd of people. And you can bet that if a huge crowd of soldiers and priests and other people are marching through Jerusalem and going down to the valley of Kidron and back up in the Olive Garden, you can be sure that people who are up in the middle of the night would have wandered, rubberneckers you might want to call them, and they would have followed. What's going on? What's happening? It's like when you're 
in your neighborhood one night and you can hear or perhaps you even see some flashing lights of an ambulance and there's something in the inside of you that wants to go check out what's happening. And you can be sure that a number of people, even in the middle of the night, would have gathered with this crowd. This crowd got getting bigger and bigger as they approached the Garden of Gethsemane. Added to all this, Luke tells us that the temple police, the temple guard, you don't know how many were involved in that, but a number of, of another uh, group of armed men were involved in this. Uh, the temple was a large complex. We've talked about this before. Forty acres on that mount had a lot of things going on. The temple um, in the middle of it, of course, of all, of all kinds of other things, valuable things. There would have been collection chests and all kinds of things. So there was a, a guard, a professional guard that was set to protect the temple. That 40 acres was very valuable. And so, again, a number of people, a number of men who had been armed were brought along in this great crowd. Like I said, there were others, Judas, the priests, their retinue. It would not be too much of a stretch to say there could have been as many as a thousand people coming to arrest one man. Thinking about the crowd, do, do a word study sometime of the, the crowd's attitude toward Jesus. Aklos, what is Aklos in the Gospels? What are the crowds? How do they respond and react to Jesus, His entire ministry? Well, one thing you can be certain about the crowds, they did not have faith in Jesus. I'm sure there were exceptions of individuals, but as a whole, the crowds did not have faith in Jesus. Oh, they believed in His miracles. Nobody denied His miracles, not even His, his enemies, not the, not the Pharisees or scribes or anybody denied His miracles. It was too obvious. It was provable. It was true. People who they knew had been blind and lame were, were now healed. So they didn't deny His miracles. In fact, they came to Jesus wanting a miracle. They came to Jesus in droves. Thousands upon thousands of people, and we talked about this early in Matthew, early in Jesus' ministry, there were, there were times where day, Jesus would not sleep for days at a time, three, four days at a time, and He would just be healing one person after the other, after the other, after the other. On top of that, you think about the crowd being fed. These crowds love that. We learn in the book of John, I believe, we learn that Jesus, after the feeding of the 4,000, that... They wanted to rise up and make him king. So they loved Jesus for his food. They loved Jesus for his healing. They loved Jesus insofar he could meet their felt needs, but they did not have faith in Jesus. And so this is a shocking scene. Instead of welcoming the Son of God, here we see the crowds again not loving, not following and believing and trusting Messiah, their Messiah, the promised one. Instead, they've amassed together as a group of wicked, violent vigilantes. They're armed, so they're ready to tackle and beat and stab him. What crime had he committed? What legal or sacred law had he violated? Well, the answer is nothing. He'd only blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. The crowd wanted him dead. Their actions have no relations to justice, no relation to righteousness, of equity, goodness, fairness. 
this mob had been whipped up emotionally, charged false pretenses, false accusations. Well, as I mentioned, one large part of this crowd would have indeed been the chief priests and other religious leaders, a number of other scribes and mentions rabbis, but other gospel writers say scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, parts of the Sanhedrin. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. Thinking of the, the priests themselves, the high, when it says high priest, it, it would have been, yes, the, the acting high priest, but probably would have included a number of other priests who were either on their way to become the high priest or had recently been the high priest. In fact, as we go through this narrative, what we're going to find is that the, the, high, the current high priest at that time was Caiaphas. His father-in-law was the immediate priest, high priest before him. And so they're all tied together. They still refer to him as high priest. So sometimes it gets a little confusing because it's kind of like being president. They, once you get that title, you keep that title. So you have a number of high priests there, former and future and current. And of course, all these high priests would have had a retinue. They would have had a number of servants and other people with them. They all come up. These are the priests of Israel. What was the role of the priests of Israel? Priests were of the tribe of Levi. You remember, the tribe of Levi was given to the people of God. Their, their objective, they were not given a specific piece of land. They were spread all across Israel, and they were to minister the Word of God to the people. The priests, more specifically, were supposed to explain to the people and help the people obey the law of God as it pertained to worship. The high priest was to focus the whole nation of Israel on worshiping God through the sacrificial and substitutionary atonement. So starting there with their responsibilities, everything they dealt with in the temple, everything they dealt with, these priests, in terms of worship, in terms of liturgy, all of it foreshadowed and called upon them to hope in the Messiah and call people to hope in the Messiah. Yet, when the Messiah came, not only was their first instinct to protect their power and riches, but it was to do so by killing the very Messiah to whom they should have been asking the nation to worship. This is utter betrayal. Of all people, the priest should have known. You, you hear this in Jesus' teaching throughout His ministry, right? Have you not read? Do you not know? Are you not the teacher of the law? Jesus asked them over and over, and these people of all people, should be worshiping Jesus, calling others to do the same. But this is wicked betrayal. Sometimes we hear about something like this in, in ministry, right? You hear about a pastor or pastors who are revealed as using ministry, building riches and fame and executing even carnal desire on all the pretense of ministering the Word of God or being a preacher of the Word of God. It's a pinnacle of hypocrisy. It's why Jesus commonly called them hypocrites. You guys are hypocrites. They betrayed God, and so now here they are betraying God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Speaking of betrayal, nobody is more guilty of betrayal than the individual leading this group. Judas. Matthew says in verse 
47, Judas, quote, one of the twelve, at first glance, you, you may not think much about that phrase, one of the twelve, because indeed he is one of the original twelve. But that phrase was used only one time else to describe someone other than Judas. One time it was used to de describe Thomas when he was struggling with faith in Christ after the resurrection. You remember that? Sort of derogatory. You're one of the twelve and you still don't believe? But every other time that phrase, one of the twelve, is used, it's used to describe Judas. It's used here. It was used earlier in this chapter in verse 14. It was used in Mark chapter 14, describing when he went to the priest to betray Jesus. Used two more times in Mark 14, once when he was dipping his hand in with Jesus at the Passover. And then the other time in Mark 14, parallel to this, when he brought this mob to arrest Jesus. That phrase, one of the twelve, was also used in Luke about Judas and in John about Judas once each. It's almost as if the apostles, the apostles, of course, were in charge of the, the writing and the putting together of the New Testament. It's almost as if the apostles, as they mentioned Judas' name, were still astonished that one of the twelve could betray Jesus. They were shocked, they were saddened, they were amazed that of all people, one of the twelve, the one who had seen what we had seen, one who had witnessed and heard and been blessed by and been around the, the beauty of Jesus, one who had been around Jesus, been all over the country. This is the one who betrayed us, one of the twelve. Matthew resorts to simply calling him the betrayer, almost like a title, the betrayer. Judas knew Jesus. He knew of his perfection. He knew of Jesus' power. He knew of Jesus' knowledge, his love, his sympathy. Judas saw all this. He benefited from all of this. In both John and the Gospels of John and Luke, it says that Satan entered Judas, meaning the devil had significant control at least several specific times in Judas' life. We don't know if it was full-on demon possession or if it was something that just happened from time to time, but clearly Satan himself had power over Judas. How else could you explain this? That he would betray the one who loved him so much. He truly is a child of the devil, a son of perdition. He has full culpability here. This was the life that he chose for himself. And of all people in the world, Judas, in terms of unbelievers, Judas knew him best, and yet he betrayed him. And the Bible teaches that those with no knowledge of Christ and die, and even though they die rejecting God and rejecting natural revelation, they will pay for their sins, but the punishment they receive will be far less than those who hear the gospel, hear of Christ, 
and reject Him anyway. Well, right at the top of the list, of course, would be Satan himself. That's for whom God created hell. But I imagine very nearby Satan would be Judas. He was controlled by Satan, and not something that was unwillful, but willfully. It's something that Judas wanted and desired, and God granted. Judas and this wicked mob had agreed that he would identify Jesus. I suppose that's because it was very dark and they didn't have any electricity or flashlights back then, maybe some torches. It had been quite dark. Maybe they didn't fully recognize Jesus. He wanted the soldiers to see them, and so he told them that I'll identify him with a kiss. I believe it was this moment that Judas was being motivated by Satan. He was full of hate, full of jealousy and pride and spite, anger, all straight from Lucifer. He knew who Jesus was, he knew what Jesus had done, and yet he was handing him over to the wicked leaders to kill him. It says he went over and he kissed Jesus. The word there for kiss indicates a, a firm, powerful, even long, angry kiss. Tradition and culture means this would be on his cheek. So you just get this image of Judas going over and firmly, angrily kissing Jesus on the cheek. greeted him and came over and kissed him. At this moment, after Judas kisses him, John tells us that Jesus asked the crowd, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what happened next? According to John's gospel, what Jesus said, he said two significant words. I am and what happened next? They all fell over. It says they drew back and fell to the ground. Something supernatural took place. Something amazing took place when Jesus said those words, I am. Maybe just those words themselves just threw them to the ground. Perhaps it shocked them and they all parried and fell. Whatever was happening, it was supernatural, it was amazing. And it validated who he was to all of them. All of them knew exactly who Jesus was in that moment. I am. They all fall down. Stand back up, dust themselves off. Jesus is no longer an intimate friend with Judas, he knows Judas. And he says there in verse 50, friend, and the word friend there is not the intimate friendship, it's not the friendship of a, of a brotherhood, it's a generic acknowledgement of acquaintance, Be more, something more like sir or man, no affection whatsoever. And this is the last thing that Jesus, Jesus says to Judas, do what you've come to do. It's settled, there's no love there. There's no true friendship. This man is damned, though he knew Jesus mentally, though he was someone who knew everything about Jesus, even emotionally, probably drawn to Jesus in many times and many ways. In the end, he was a fraud. He was a fake. He was a betrayer. He was a tool of Satan. It says in the rest of 50 that 
When he said this, do what you've come to do, they seized Jesus to forcefully take him into custody. That's betrayal. All these people at the very top is Judas, the betrayer, leading all the rest of the betrayers to come and seize Jesus. Now, the hinge point of this passage is 51, 52, and 53. All we've seen so far is depravity, betrayal, satanic wickedness, that final farewell, farewell, as it were, all of this betrayal. Soldiers ostensibly reach up. They grab Jesus forcefully. Then verse 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Now, Matthew's being nice to Peter here. He doesn't mention Peter by name. Maybe Matthew knows what's coming for Peter and the ignominity that's happening here just in a few verses. So maybe he's just trying to be kind to Peter. I think probably by the time Matthew wrote this, everybody knew what Peter had done. Peter's the one that pulled out his sword and went for the head of the servant of the high priest. John tells us his name is Malchus. Maybe Peter felt emboldened by the fact that Jesus could speak a word and they all fall down. Maybe he was a little bit insecure about that prediction earlier, right? Jesus had said, you're going to deny me, and Peter said, no, I won't. I'm going to go to death with you. Maybe he was little insecure about that, wanted to prove himself. And once he sees Jesus' power to knock everybody down, he's, well, he's, he's full of himself. We can, we can take him, Jesus. We can do this. Don't really know what his ultimate motivation is. Maybe that's a question you can ask him. But impetuously, Peter took his sword and tried to take a, the head off of Malchus, the servant. He, let me just tell you, he wasn't going for his ear. He's going for the guy's head. The guy ducked just enough time to save his head but lose his ear. Jesus, we're told, reaches down, miraculously places his ear back on his head, heals him there. not going to break this all down, but clearly Jesus is saying his kingdom, Peter, my kingdom, is not going to advance at the tip of the sword. And further, that he, as God, has the power, has the right to call down 12 legions or perhaps 70,000 angels to dispatch this crowd quickly and easily. But he had set aside that omnipotence to accomplish the will of God. So this is all about the plan, the foretold scriptural plan of God. This is all about Jesus and the disciples submitting to that plan, not about fighting and battling and winning but the plan of death, the plan of atonement. We read about earlier in Isaiah 53, all of this, Jesus is saying in the last few verses here, is all about fulfillment. Look there again at 54. How should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching... And you did not seize me. All of this, though, has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And all the disciples left him 
and fled. So now we've moved from these wicked acts of betrayal, but God has a plan. God is sovereign even over sin and betrayal, even the most wicked sins. So number two, after there's betrayal, there is now, number two, fulfillment. I wrote down four things about fulfillment here that I see maybe I didn't write these down. I didn't put them in the notes, but one thing I noted is that Jesus' divine power is set aside. It's still His, but it's set aside for fulfillment. This is all part of the incarnation. I discussed this a little bit last week. Jesus could have called to the Father. The Father would have sent angels, 70,000 angels. Now, that's all theoretical, right? I mean, had Jesus done that, He would have been abandoning the plan to prove He's not the divine Savior after all, and Thus, he wouldn't have the authority to call down that, that many angels. But theoretically, Jesus says, in theory, it is my right to ask the Father, and he would send and defend me with 70,000 angels. He would come down and wreak destruction across all the Roman Empire. He has that power, and I have that authority. In other words, he told Peter, there is nothing in Scripture and nothing in what I've told you that... I'm going to come into my kingdom with a sword and with power and with might and with my omnipotence. I've told you, Peter, over and over again, I must die. It's not about my victory at the tip of the sword. It's about my death. I've set aside my omnipotence. I have set aside my divine right to all these attributes to be incarnated and to die the humble death of a slave in fact, Jesus adds a little principle here. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Those who are in perpetual conflict, fighting, battling, battling, trying to do this through military or through government or even in their personal families, they're just people of conflict. They die in conflict. That's not how this kingdom will advance. To add to all this, if we try to do this now, Scripture will not be fulfilled, Peter. This is about laying down my life for the sheep. What was needed in the Garden of Gethsemane at that moment was exactly what was needed from the beginning. Jesus had the right, the divine authority to come and dominate the earth, but what was needed is for him to set that aside so that he could be a servant, a lamb of God, who would lay down his life for the transgressions, as Isaiah says, of the many. Because that was the plan, he had to set aside for that purpose his divine power to fulfill that. We also see in this text that evil intentions and activity were used for fulfillment. Jesus says to this wicked crowd, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple and you didn't seize me. He pointed out their, their mindless attack. They simply wanted him dead. Clearly that's what, that's what they intended. Why else would they bring swords and clubs? They wanted him dead. You can imagine some of them saying to his friend on the way up, some of them probably said, boy, I just hope he comes my way. I'll take this club and I will let him have it. I got this sword. I've gotten pretty good at this sword now. He comes my way. He tries to dart over this way. They were a little bit fearful because Christ two times, once in Nazareth and once on the Temple Mount, two times had miraculously passed through them. We don't really know how he did that metaphysically, but somehow when they were coming upon him, he, he sort of got away. 
And so perhaps they thought if we bring enough people, he won't be able to get away. And Jesus says to them, I've proven my kindness and my love and my passion. I've come as a teacher. I've come as a healer. Even in the temple cleansing, particularly for the commoners, this was an act of mercy. Did not injure anybody. Did not come against anybody. I got your attention and turned the tables over and called you to obey God and make this a house of prayer. I've given you no evidence that I would harm you, hurt you, fight you, kill you. And yet you come to me like I need to be stabbed into submission. I think this is to simply point out that these people came to Jesus in order to kill him. Their hearts were murderous. Their hearts were hateful. The betrayal was not just an opportunity for money for Judas. It was primarily a chance to finally get Jesus in the grave where he wanted him. And they were all looking for an opportunity to do that. Now, nothing is said here. It's presumed and pretty easy to see that Jesus lets himself be arrested and he's taken away. He's not fighting there. There's no struggle. He does not resist them. He does not fight them. So I wrote down a third thing about fulfillment. Willing obedience is also a part of fulfillment. Jesus' incarnation is setting aside of his power and authority. It was still his. It was still his right. Setting aside his power and authority is to fulfill God's word. It was to be subservient, to obey the plan, to follow the scriptures, the will of God. God's not just using circumstances to bring about His will, His sovereign will. He's not just using evil people to bring about His sovereign will. He's also using a a humble, subservient Savior who's doing the will of God in obedience. And think about that prayer that Jesus taught His disciples. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's for us to emulate. He says at the beginning of that prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, I want to do your revealed will. I realize that in obeying you and submitting to you, your revealed will is accomplished in me. I want to be on that side of providence. I don't want to be on the evil side of providence where my wickedness and my sin is being used to accomplish God's will. I want to be on the servant side. I want to be with Jesus here. I want to be willing and obedient to the will of God. Jesus is obeying Scripture It places him squarely in the middle of God's plan. Finally, I wrote down, sort of going back to that original idea, sending disciples is also within the fulfillment. Last phrase, verse 56, then the disciples left him and fled. Remember, this is going back to Zechariah, chapter 13. This is a prophecy. The shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. I was amazed at the, the change in Peter from verse 51 to verse 56. Just six verses there. Peter goes from being this guy who wants to attack hell with a water pistol to running away. I think what that tells us is that Peter really wasn't ready to die. He was ready to die if Jesus showed his power and his might and knocked people over with his words But as soon as it became clear that Jesus was focused on the cross and dying, Peter ran away. All the other disciples ran away. 
But as we noticed earlier, this is all a part of fulfillment. This was something that was predicted. What a lesson for us. One thing I draw from this, really the main thing that we draw from this text is that all of history, but specifically the covenants leading up to the death of Christ, all of this points us to Christ. All of history, all the providence, all the things God has done points us to Christ and Him crucified. It points us even to the rejection of His own people, the abandonment by His own disciples. It calls upon us to do what the people in Isaiah 53 do, and that is they, they realized what they had once considered Jesus as smitten of God and deserved for punishment and to change their hearts and their minds and to realize He's dying for our sins. I think that's the main purpose of this passage, to see that God is sovereign over this whole thing, and it's all to get Jesus on the cross as a fulfillment of Scripture. Another thing that I wrote down we can draw from this is to take comfort in the fact that evil, betrayal even, that comes your way, or even that you perpetrate, is not a shock to God. It's not some surprise to God that He suddenly has to come up with plan B or plan quadruple Z because you're sinning or someone else has sinned against you and somehow this is not the way it's supposed to be and my life would be a lot better if this and this had happened. You don't have to worry about all that. It's all part of God's gracious plan to make you who you are, to glorify Him, to bring you to better repentance, better humility, to bring you to a place, even if you don't understand all of that evil, to bring you to a place where you would worship Him. Another thing I think we can learn from this is something I mentioned a moment ago about being on the right side of providence. God is providential over everything, good and evil. Whether you're like this wicked band of people who are rejecting the Messiah, or whether you're like even the disciples who abandoned the Messiah for a little while, or whether you're obeying Christ and submitting to Him, you're still a part of God's providence. Why not be on the smiling side of God's providence? Why not be on the side that submits to His will and obeys His Word and is focused on what the Word of God has said so that you can obey it? Why not find the path that Jesus did, the path of obedience and submission to God's Word and God's will? Well, let's pray that the Lord would help us do this very thing. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what Christ suffered that night, this wicked crowd of people who came to kill him. Thank you that he did this, that he set aside his glory and his power. It was rightfully his. It's truly his as God. He has that right, that authority. He could call down all this. He could bring vicious judgment on everything, and yet your sovereign plan and your magnificent providential plan, you've not planned for that at this time. So we see the story of Jesus is so, in so many ways, parallel to how we live life. We look back to Christ and we see that Christ submitted to the plan. He knew that evil will exist only for a while, and then in the end, God will bring justice. 
And so, Lord, may we interpret our own days, may we interpret our own hardship and our struggles, may we interpret these things as part of your great magnificent plan. Help us to submit to Christ. I pray that especially for those who don't know Christ, those who have not repented of their sin and followed after Jesus. I pray, Lord, today would be the day of salvation, that they would look upon Christ and change their hearts, esteem Him as someone who is the Lamb of God. I pray that they'd worship Him in their hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.